Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now on with the show. That day I walked and stumbled out. I didn't walk, I stumbled out and I crossed this warehouse. I looked in and I knew there was a climbing warehouse near there. And I had this sort of moment of clarity or this epiphany, which you sometimes hear in um, 12 step programs. I wanted to climb. Um, I wanted to be like those people scaling walls. So the next day I took a class and um, I climbed. And that whole week, I went back to that gym I joined, and I climbed every day. Hey, everyone. Welcome on board to another episode of One Step Beyond, a podcast all about positively engaging with the world outside your door with me, your host, Tony Fletcher. I'm especially excited about this episode. I know I say that all the time, but I genuinely am because we're definitely getting outdoors today and we're also avoiding my fallback topics for getting outdoors, which are generally travel and running. And I know the last few episodes or the predominance of episodes on this second season have gone that way. But today we're going to talk rock climbing and we're going to do more than that. We're going to talk about three rockaholics who have made a movie called Rockaholic, one of them in particular, who's my guest, uh, feature guest today. And we are also going to be discussing why and how they got into rock climbing, because it involves another form of holicalism. And it's uh, to do with their prior addictions, their own individual stories of addiction, and how they found recovery, release, and relief in the world of rock climbing, even if as the title suggests, they may possibly have swapped one addiction for another, being people who have addictive personalities. Rockaholic is a documentary that I have been fortunate enough to see in another additional capacity I have, screening movies for a local and highly celebrated film festival. And it's I love how the universe works and coincidences pile up. At the end of June, I took a week up in Maine, staying at a friend's place, and I knew I had some films to watch, and I knew that this film, uh, Rockaholic, was on my list, and I watched it and was instantly like, I'm at the Acadia National Park. I've been wanting to go rock climbing. Maybe this is my week. Well, it wasn't for a couple of reasons I'm going to mention in the interview. But during that week, I met a lovely couple from Boston who uh, have done much rock climbing in my neck of the woods, the Shawangunk Mountains, just south of where I live. They were very encouraging. And I just felt, you know what? This is a perfect opportunity here. I reached out to the contact listed on the movie. It turns out to be Michael Doremi, who is the executive producer, but he's also one of the three characters, uh, the main driving character actually in this movie, former addict. He will talk about his story. 
Michael is joined on our interview by the movie's director, which is Christopher Alstrin. He is a celebrated cinematographer and director of photography when it comes to outdoor sports, uh, particularly the world of rock climbing. Chris lives in Boulder, Colorado, so uh, that should almost be... Um, a pre-given and for his part Michael was living in San Francisco that's where much of the story in the documentary is based he just moved to Portland Oregon uh, in his RV which is another story I may want to do one day about living in an RV or living uh, the camper van lifestyle but one thing at a time going to uh, set this up right now, but I just want to do some house cleaning first. I haven't given a long thought to, and a lot of thought to how I can best organize my very diverse work, make sure that people who want to be aware of it can be aware of it. And also, I have to be honest, looking for a different way to monetize it than the sort of uh, shouts I've given previously to go to a supporter page. I've set up a Substack. I am a writer by trade and Substack is just ideal for people who write, who want to say some things and they know that their posts on social media just get lost and algorithms get in the way and people don't find them. So um, I was encouraged by other people to do this. I have taken the leap, so to speak, and you will find me on tonyfletcher.substack.com. This way, you'll be able to get updates on podcasts, this one and the other one that I do. Uh, you'll be get a free weekly long-form article and a midweek kind of news update uh, in which I'll share other items and other bits of news related to you know what goes on around my life and what you're interested in. I will be going into my interview archives for those who wish to actually subscribe at a monthly cost, which is currently only five bucks a month. But the basic premise is it's free. So just again, please go to tonyfletcher.substack.com. I will put in a hyperlink in the show notes. I really, really hope you'll join me. It is, like I say, completely free. If you want to dig deeper, then as I get it together, you're welcome to start paying. And I would love that because putting together these shows, all the subscription services I have to subscribe for, for my, my software, it all costs money and also time is money. Um, but I do love doing this and I'd like to be able to continue doing this. And just a reminder, we don't have ads on this show. I don't like the kind of ads I get subjected to on other people's podcasts. I don't want to subject you to meaningless, cheaply produced, crass capitalist ads. Likewise, I'm not going to be a snake oil salesman for any sponsorship deal for anything I don't believe in. I'm not adverse to the right sponsorship, but I am adverse to the wrong sponsorship. So all the more reason to pop over to the Substack and sign up. You'll get a uh, email twice a week, that part of it, completely free. You won't miss an episode. You'll get bonus features, etc., etc. Okay, going to jump into the conversation just a couple of minutes in. I've mispronounced Michael's name. He's corrected me. It's Michael Doremi. And then I asked Michael to give me the Hollywood elevator pitch for Rockaholic. It's real simple. It's Rockaholic, a film about how three recovering addicts, their lives were saved by rock climbing. That is, that is perfect. You can do that between two floors of a fast elevator. And I have had the uh, pleasure and privilege of seeing the whole 
film. Um, I've been screening some movies for a local uh, film festival, and this one came, came across my radar, and it appealed to me on a number of issues, especially once I started watching it. A, I've been really interested in rock climbing. As somebody a lot of people know, I'm a runner. I look at the mountain. I like to run up it. I've been to the tallest mountain in the world that you can be to without putting on mountain gear, you know, actual climbing gear, which is Kilimanjaro. And I have never done rock climbing. And uh, this movie came across my desk right as I was considering, you know, how I could maybe do an episode of this show around it. But it also really appealed to me because your story, Michael, um, you know, there was some background aspects that culturally fit in with the world that sort of I've been around at times. So give me your own backstory um, that will explain why the movie has the title Rockaholic and elaborate on the addiction thing that you talked about. And then maybe I'll have Chris talk about the other participants that are in the movie as well. Sure. Um, when I first did this um, project, it was my story. But then I met people similar to me who've gone through some struggles that led to climbing so it really became about our story. And then larger than that, it became about the community of people we meet along the way. Um, for me, I started out being addicted as a fat kid to food. That was my solace. And that's kind of what was my friend growing up. And that led to people. And then people led to, um, you know, drugs after college. And when I moved to San Francisco, which is where I really got um, into drugs in 1996, it became my relationship. Like, I don't remember early on having any kind of exciting experiences, let alone climbing, because I was doing nightclubs on the weekends and doing drugs to kind of keep up with that lifestyle. Um, I had a life change years later in San Francisco where I overdosed twice within the same month. First time I was lucky, you know, I, I woke up, but I still wanted to go out there and do my addiction. I wanted to party. A couple weeks later, I um, overdosed in the same place. And when I came out of the same hospital in the same emergency room, I let myself out. And the first thing I went to do was looked in my wallet to see if my drugs were there. They were gone. So this is like the second event that I've had within a month. That day, I walked and stumbled out. I didn't walk. I stumbled out. And I crossed this warehouse. I looked in. And I knew there was a climbing warehouse near there. And I had this sort of moment of clarity or this epiphany, which you sometimes hear in 12-step um, programs. I wanted to climb. Um, I wanted to be like those people scaling walls. So the next day I took a class and um, I climbed. And that whole week I went back to that gym I joined and I climbed every day. But I knew that because of my addiction, I needed help. So that week I also went into my first AA meeting. Um, and it was the hardest walk ever to go through those doors. And because you're very vulnerable, but I'm so thankful that I discovered both within the same week because literally it saved my life. You made that sound uh, like uh, you made it sound relatively painless because you told it in a in a, in a, a, a really lovely succinct uh, couple of minutes. But the I guess the the addiction thing, you know, a lot of it in the the film uh, revolves around the the sort of nightclub scene and the drugs. But you're really saying that it starts with childhood, and it's and and in your case, I mean, obviously, I don't look at you and say, oh, you know, like like. Uh, kid with an eating problem as a you know as a kid but that's because you were a kid back then uh do you think it's innate do you think it's like the the addiction thing is something that you're you're born with so it just ultimately became swapping out food for drugs 
I think it could be both. I think it could be definitely an environment because my father was an alcoholic and his father was an alcoholic. And my sister from my dad's side is also an addict. And then my brother from my dad's side are addicts. So that's like five people in that side of the family who are addicts. Um, I think the environment too, I went to college and I drank. I never drank until I was 21. So I'm in college, it led to you know, other drugs um, like acid and then eventually ecstasy and then eventually Coke and meth. Um, so I think part of its environment and I think part of its, um, you know, predisposition, maybe through genes, through my family on my dad's side. On my mom's side, I didn't really have that sort of addictive personality, more codependency, trying to, you know, be a partner with the alcoholic on my dad's side. Wow. Chris, any such issues that you're in, and how did you get involved in telling Michael's story in this really, really genuinely, not just fascinating, but very emotional, really emotional documentary? I mean, straight up, I want to compliment you on it. If the film wasn't great, I wouldn't have followed up and, and contacted Michael. Oh, well, thanks so much. Um, yeah, I mean, Michael reached out to me for this. Uh, I forget what year it was, but it was... Quite a 2013. Few okay, so 10 years ago. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I knew it was a while. Yeah, it was a while. And originally, it was just a, a pitch video. He wanted me to just come to San Francisco to film him and to do something for his uh, meetup group. Wasn't that right, Michael? Like the yeah. the Rockaholic, you wanted to make a pitch video of, of something like that. <clears throat> and then once I started interviewing you specifically uh, and listening to your story, I think after I, I spent a few days with you there in the city, you and um, uh, Aaron. Was Aaron, yes, sorry, um, <clears throat> and interviewed you both and started talking with you. And I was like, man, this is a uh, this is something big. Like then I think afterwards, or maybe it was at the end of the trip, I said, hey, what about making something bigger than just a three or four minute video, which was I think the original. And you were like, absolutely, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> what <laughs> so was your kinda, what yeah, what was your background, Chris? I mean, I get the feeling from that you were already making films and Michael reached out to you because he thought you'd be good for, for this. Were you already like an outdoor cinematographer? Exactly, yeah. I've been um, making outdoor films for maybe 25 years now. And um, I think he heard of me through a film called Wide Boys. And uh, that's, that's, yeah, and then he just reached out. Right. And then... So, so you mentioned the name Aaron. There are three characters in uh, this documentary. So, I, I, I guess it's taking shape. Uh, Michael originally, it's his idea to do something. It's a pitch video. Then you want to tell Michael's story. There's a guy, another guy called Aaron, who's also got a, a story about coming up through the clubs of San Francisco and and having drug issues. Uh, who I guess is part Tony, of your meetup group. Yep. Tony, um, let me interject. Aaron sure. was actually my. Aaron was actually my co-producer. So he and I sort of um, carried the story to Chris during the whole process. Oh. The gentleman you're alluding to is Ben. Um, and then Maureen's the third person. And so Ben had a similar story, um, like you just said, through the clubs of San Francisco. All right. So, okay. So how did you, how did you get to reach out to those two? Are, there, are they people you knew through the climbing community? Or Michael, did you know Ben through the club community first? Yeah, I saw Ben in my home group, that same place where I discovered rock climbing, um, my home gym. I saw him, he was a lead uh, route setter, so he would set up all the routes. And I saw him, he was really flamboyant, he had people surrounding him, he was really funny. And there was a part of me, he's like, who's that bitch? Who does he think he is? <laughs> so there, 
there was another part of me that idolized him and wanted to kind of be like him because I was new and I didn't know anybody. The second part of that was that Maureen was in my climbing group called Get Your Climb On. And we were sitting watching Chris's film White Boys in a film festival called uh, Real Rock. And I turned to her and asked her about her story. How did she get into climbing? It was similar to mine where drugs addiction led her to climbing. I'm like, besides Ben, because I heard his story too. I was like, these are great people. I would love them to be part of the project. And with Maureen, um, I think, I don't know if she's either older or as the story that she tells, which I think is in many ways, if you'll allow me, probably the most powerful um, because it does involve, I don't want to have a, too much of a spoiler alert, but her drinking is primarily drink that, that starts so early, uh, involves her giving up a, um, a, a child. Um, yeah. And I, I'll save the spoiler as to whether or not she ever gets to meet the child again. But, but that's, a pre, that's, a, that's about as heavy a thing as you can go through to realize you can't actually raise a kid because you're not, uh, because of your addictions. Hers, hers seems more drinking, but can you talk about what, uh, you know, why would somebody want to take any of these things that you mentioned? There must be a good reason. I think there are good reasons. So, uh, can you look back on this, Michael, and say, well, up to a point, this is great. Why you would want to take, you know, you mentioned a, few, a couple of things, and I think that, that, that some of them are very different from each other. You mentioned sort of acid and ecstasy. You know, why would you want to take those and, and, and of themselves, would it, did they benefit a night out of the club? Or, or could you have just done with the dance music alone? I think in the 1990s, I was in uh, college, um, and People were smoking pot and drinking, and I didn't do that. So I think there was a boredom trigger. I think that there was a peer pressure. Nobody was pressuring me to do it, but I felt like in order to hang out with these college guys and be really cool, um, I had to try pot and then, you know, drank and did other drugs. But there was a rave scene. It was very electronica music. It's like EDC music today. We would go to raves. We would take acid, and then we'd take ecstasy, and it was fun. It it made you feel that sort of sense of power, that dopamine, adrenaline rush. And when you're with people, because it was a very social drug for me, I wasn't at home doing these things. It, it enhanced sort of what you were feeling and where you were at. Or if you were feeling those things, it kind of brought you to that place. And you were on the same playing field with everybody. Everyone was instantly your friend. So I think the trigger was boredom, a little bit of peer pressure myself, uh, curious. And then definitely wanted friends. And those sort of reasons led me to that. And when I got to San Francisco, the ch- it, I wasn't in college anymore. I was in the real world. And I knew that, in you know, I'm gay. And so in the LGBT world, our place for us to gather are in bars and clubs. It's where we safe, felt safe many years ago. But it was also kind of a place where you could have instant friends. So the clubs I went to, they weren't rave music anymore. It was now house music, which comes from, I want to say, Chicago, Detroit, um, it was all night music. It was high energy. In order to keep up with that high energy music and dancing, you kind of had to do stuff that kept you up all night, like like um, cocaine. But cocaine wasn't as like I did meth. Meth was my drug of choice. It lasted for like two days. Um, it was cheap. It was easily accessible, and everybody in that club space was doing it. And so when I want moved to San Francisco. I just went to the clubs and I met people instantly who became my friends. And as long as the party was going, it was fun until it wasn't fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is the familiar story. That is always the story. It's fun until it isn't fun. Um, 
I have never, uh, I've never done crystal meth. Um, my my son, who's my younger son, who's now eighteen, has been forcing me to watch Breaking Bad because he thinks it's such a great TV show. And I admit it's a it it is great television. I don't particularly enjoy large elements of it because it's so violent. Um, uh, but I I stayed away from that. I'll also say that in New York, um, ketamine was very damaging to a lot of people, and it it felt like it yeah, that that the addictions to things around there caused people to get very violent. And there were, uh, you know, there's a famous Club Kid murder, um, which movies, two movies have been made out of that one. And uh, these are all characters I knew, both the murderer and the victim. Um, so I've, I, when I say I've seen the effects of this firsthand, I've really seen the effects of this, uh, this firsthand. Um, I, uh, uh, you know, my own... I don't mind putting down my own take, and I think I've got probably another show to recommend uh, a friend of mine recently did. I think under certain controlled environments, uh, certain things, certain psychedelics play an important role in human culture. And uh, they can be unifiers, and they can sort of be you know, famously cliched open doors of perception. And there are certainly uh, tribal indigenous groups that uh, for whom these things, you know, such the use of such plants, etc., are very important. And um, I'm sort of I'm 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 a, a reasonably cautious. Uh, uh, I want to choose my words carefully. I don't want to say so much proponent, but I think that there are, be- you know, people can have a positive experience from doing something in a controlled environment for the right reasons. I think you know the the dance floor is somewhere that, like you say, you need to be able to stay up, and um, there aren't a lot of things that will get you to do that once your own natural adrenaline is going to wear off. So this is kind of unfortunately a uh, byproduct of the fact that we love dancing, and some of these cultures have learned how to sort of you know use natural substances and have their own sort of, quote, raves for a couple of days, but it's maybe in an environment where it's traditional enough that they know how far is too far? Chris, do you come to this? I mean, you look, you know, I'm, I'm looking at you here. You do look like the, the, the picture, of, picture of health. Have you faced any of these issues yourself? Have you uh, anything in your family? Can you, can you relate? Uh, no, <clears throat> not really. I, I mean, in terms of uh, drug and alcohol, you know, I've, I've never really been into drugs. Um, I, I feel like I have an, some sort of addictive behavior and, but I put that towards, you know, going out and doing things. Uh, if I feel like if I don't work out like once a day or, uh, then that could probably lead down the wrong, you know, the wrong road. So I feel like I, I take, I take it a different direction, you know, kind of like, I guess, because maybe growing up, I never got into drugs and, Maybe that was my parents saying it was always bad and, you know, this and that. But, uh, you know, I was around friends all the time who did, um, well, smoked weed. And in fact, I actually dealt dealt the weed with them all the time because uh, I was like the perfect dealer, right? Because I didn't smoke it. So I always had it. But, um, yeah, I never, never had other than that. So in terms of filming people who are talking about these problems, for, um, how, how does that, uh, emotionally, how did that hit you? Because you're really the filmmaker here. Yeah, I mean, everyone's story, you know, would, like hit me differently. Um, and I remember watching 
Um, and, and we had a few other characters that didn't quite make the cut because the stories were just so different. Um, it was climbing changed their lives, but it wasn't, you know, a drug related thing in it. And so we wanted to stick with just the kind of a more addiction in terms of in terms of that. But yeah, I mean, with, you know, Ben alone, like listening to, you know, and, and over the course of the years, like we probably filmed what Michael, like five different times, I think. Uh, yeah. Sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. So we would, you know, once a year we would meet up and do another interview and talk more and like, Oh, we need this for the cut. Like, you know, let's, let's, let's try and see what we can do here. And so everyone's story kind of hit me different. And uh, yeah, I, I think it was, um, you know, it turned out to be kind of cool. And uh, Marines, of course, you know, wasn't drugs, except more alcohol, which, you know, some could even argue that is, is worse than, you know, drugs because it's completely legal and you could, anyone can go and buy it off the, you know, like it's almost sure. pushed on you. Sure. Way. Sure. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Now what we I'm, I'm here to sort of, you know, I want to move into the physicality of this because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by it, but I'm also fascinated, Michael, by the fact that it took two ODs for you within a month most people on the outside including myself because i've never been in your situation would assume that the first time you wake up in a hospital and you've od'd on the dance floor and as you tell it in the film you kind of you know they say oh your friends brought you here and you're like oh well where are my friends thinking they're like waiting in the room next door and they've what gone back to the club so they're not really i mean they're your friends but but this isn't enough for you. You go back and do it ag again. So what does that tell us about hitting rock bottom or 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 how hard it is to get out of a s scenario that you mostly enjoy? I mean, can you just elaborate on that? It was it was like, wow, you had you went through this twice before you walked into that gym. So the first time I overdosed, um, I was with my friends Dautzin and in addition to meth, I think um, there's another drug called GHB, GHB. It's sort of like roofies. It's called gamma-hydroxybutyric acid. I think bodybuilders used it years ago um, for muscle enhancement, but then people were abusing it. And so they, you know, they, they made it an illegal drug. When you mix meth and GHB with alcohol, it could be very deadly. You can pass out and even die. So I remember someone giving me a cap, like a, a water bottle cap of GHB, and then I think I had some sips of some alcohol. And then the next day, uh, next thing I remember with my friends, I woke up in the ER. And the first thing I looked for was my drugs in my pocket. The very first thing I did. And they weren't there. They took them. So I was upset. So I went out to see if my friends were there. And they weren't there the first time or the second time. And so I wanted to go back to the club to dance, to find some more drugs, to find my friends. And they actually were out there waiting for me. I just missed them. I found that out later. So that life was great because I went back and I was alive and I was fine. But because I was so out of it, whatever they did, just it, it really impacted me physically. But my mind was so strong. The addiction was so strong. It's like, okay, you, you're bored. Um, you don't want to deal with this scary thing that happened. And you can't because you're kind of out of it and you're still a little bit high maybe. So I went back into it. The second time it happened, the same exact thing. Um, I got dropped off by some friends again. And when I got there, the first thing I looked at was where's my drugs. And then I, nobody was around to discharge me. And I took the things off my 
my chest and my my arms and i just said i'm i'm out of here but this time i was really scared and freaked out um i was i i just didn't want to die i felt like i i didn't want to die i felt like i i wanted to live and so when i stumbled upon the rock climbing warehouse there was that flicker of hope a little bit of light. So you were yeah. literally walking home. I, I, I think you just sort of switched and said, I wanted to die. No, I wanted to live. I, I guess maybe it comes across as I was, I was you know, like, like I thought I might die. I wanted to live. That's how it's coming across to me. Like, like you've OD'd now twice. And this time you're like, now I'm in a really dark place. I want out of this. Um, but I'm scared I might die. Is that it? Do, do I interpret that career you've also sort of answered why i was wondering like why the second time they go hey we saw you two weeks ago um you need counseling you know but you were able to just literally discharge yourself and and go yeah um all right so you stumble upon rock climbing let's get into the rock climbing the the film um chris you can answer this as well i don't know which of you came up with the title you came up with it together the, t- the movie is called rockaholic and so you are, I think, very clearly allowing that you all, that the three characters, yourself being one of them, Michael, are addicted to rock climbing. And um, as a runner, I know that there are plenty of people in running who have, uh, you know, swapped out whatever addiction they had previously. I'm like, this is a much more fun addiction. I can't help being an addict. I'm addicted to running. Uh, but can both of you, each of you, uh, sell us on rock climbing? Because I'm, I'm fascinated, but like... But, well, it's sell it, sell, sell rock climbing over something else to us. Chris, would you mind um, starting off? Because you really started doing rock climbing before I did. And then I could jump in and talk about how we came up with the title. Yeah. Uh, so I started climbing. My brothers took me climbing my first time when I was 15. I grew up down in Colorado Springs. So, you know, they were, I had older brothers, so they were into it. And um, I stuck with it and they didn't. And for me, it turned into like a lifestyle, like, you know, I graduated um, high school and took a year off and just climbed for a bit and then went to college after college. And I was climbing all through college, you know, uh, every chance I could get, um, I would go on expeditions. I went to Pakistan, Vietnam. Um, Those were two, like, like the two big expeditions, Mexico, just to go climbing, like, you know, every single summer I, I was gone, uh, for months. Um, and it just kind of turned into that. And I do think it's, you know, you build that community, like climbing, you know, I, I guess I picture it a bit of surfing. Cause I, I kind of, as a really young kid, I grew up in the Bay area, um, just in Pacifica. And so I kind of saw that surf community a little bit and I feel like climbing's like that a little bit. Uh, where you kind of have these people who who that's, that's all they do. And for me at the time, that's all I did, you know, up until my thirties. So, uh, and, and that was every type of climbing, you know, you start, you start with rock climbing because that's kind of the easiest to get into. And then Colorado Springs has a lot of difficult, like kind of heady climbing. It's called garden of the gods is the area. So you climb like 30 feet before you get protection. So it's like very precise, very delicate climbing. And it's like, kind of called like, no, you don't want to fall, right? Because you're going to take a big fall. And so, but that, that gets you, that builds you confidence to go other places. So then you take that to like, you know, I had a friend, Eric Wellborn, he started taking me ice climbing. And then mm. immediately I was like, oh, I'm hooked with this, you know, and 
he took me to Canada and by the end of that, you know, two week trip, like I was leading ice, like I've been doing it my whole life, wow. you know? And so, and then, so from there, then that's when I started doing expeditions to Pakistan and like doing, you know, Peru, like the big mountains. And, and I got hooked on that. And so, you know, it, it's kind of an addiction in a way. And <laughs> yeah, You're a rockaholic. Does rock climbing by its very nature involve equipment? Uh, um, yes. Okay. So, um, the, the, so the nature of the gear is it can be as simple as something as having your own rope. Um, and being able to go to these uh, these ledges, these these rock faces, and I've seen them that have the uh, you know the, the the built in. What do you call them again? I mean, you call them anchors? Is that what you call them? I mean, what do we call them, Chris? Bolts for sport climbing? They're embedded in the rock. Do we just call them bolts or clips? Yeah, yeah, bolts. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's What's, the yeah. easiest way to kind of get into to climbing. You know, when when I was young, we didn't have a lot of money. Right. So one of my friends would have a rope and then mm-hmm. one of us would start to buy a quick draw here and there, or sometimes just a single carabiner. And so you had to bring a few friends together to get all your gear to be able to climb something. So, you know, it does take a little bit of gear, but you could um, try to mitigate, you know, make it as little as possible, depending on the type of climbing. Right. Hiking, although they always recommend, and the cat skills like anywhere can be dangerous. I mean, you know, weather changes. It, it, it was sunny this morning. I hear thunder right now. This is not atypical. Um, people do get lost on the mountains and people can fall and break an ankle, break a leg. But but I can go out on my own on the mountains. Um, is rock climbing something that you really should not do on your own? That's the image I get because it which leads to a, a, a related question. So maybe answer them together. Is rock climbing inherently any more or less dangerous than other outdoor sports? Chris, want to start it? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think it's more dangerous just because of what you're actually doing. You know, anytime, like even on steep hiking, if you fall backwards, you know, you might tumble down a, a few feet. Maybe you'll get a little hurt, banged up, scratched, but, at the end of the day, you're most if you're fit, you're going to be able to hike out of there. Um, if you have a bad accident falling or like climbing, I mean, if you're doing if you're doing everything correct, and uh, you know, I, I think it's relatively safe, right? But um, but then you have a lot of people who you know you kind of push the envelope, right? You're like, oh, let's I want to do this uh, run out climb, so that means your gear might be 50 feet between uh protection bolts or uh, your own cams right that's where your supplemental gear is when you put in your own gear so say you go up 40 feet and you fall you know you're falling 40 plus that 40 feet of slack so you're taking an 80 foot fall so it depends on the type of climbing that you're getting into on how safe or dangerous it may be and obviously people who don't use ropes you know that's way dangerous because um there's zero room for error but that's why people like to do it is because it you know it gives you like this mental uh thing you know i every i and i feel like uh, for a lot of climbers a lot of climbers go through that stage like i went through that stage of where i soloed a ton of stuff and you know i was in my early 20s and i was like i don't give a shit i don't care if i die but it wasn't even that. It's not like you were scared of dying because you were so confident. Like, well, this is only a five nine. I'm not going to fall. 
Yeah, that, that, that's some good descriptions. I mean, Michael, would you say that it's something that you can do solo or would you strongly recommend? Go, like, if I wanted to start right now, and I kind of do, uh, what, what should I be doing? Like, like how should I start? If you're, if you're, and Chris might, you know, agree with this. If you're new and there's a local climbing gym that you could go to, there's two directions you can go in. If the climbing has rope climbing, you could take maybe an interclass or you don't even have to have a class. You can have a friend who's climbed there take you. And you can climb as the climber, which is one of the first roles. The second role is the belayer, someone who's got you connected to the harness and has the rope and is feeding you rope so that you can climb up to the top. But a, an easier way that I tell people who um, have never climbed before, maybe they have some height issues, is to boulder. When you go indoor climbing, a lot of the gyms have maybe 10 to 15 feet walls where you can kind of boulder up. And if you fall or jump down, there's like this huge giant cushion, like a like a bed cushion, but it's called a crash pad. And so when a, a person that climbs that, they can kind of get that excitement, that taste, rope climbing, but they can also build their confidence. And if there's fear issues, they can sort of control the climb because they don't have to go all the way to the top of 10 or 15 feet. They could jump down or maybe even fall down. And we try to buffer their head by spotting it behind them when they're climbing up. I mean, Chris, would you agree that one of those ways one of them could work to introduce themselves to climbing. Yeah, I think especially nowadays, you know, there's almost a climbing gym in every town or city, you know, large city, it seems like these days. And that's a great way to start. Um, you know, I would just say, don't, you know, if, if climbing outside is what you really want to do, like, don't get, don't get caught up in only climbing indoors because it is a whole nother world outside. And, and I think it's uh, like, for me, climbing indoors is only training to go outside. Like, exactly. yeah. That's how I, I look at it. I could understand that. Michael, what is the rush? Why do I want to climb? Why should I want to climb? You described the rush a couple of times in the documentary. I don't think we've well, really think... nailed that. I don't think we've really nailed that yet. What is so damned special about rock climbing? I think... Um... Definitely the adrenaline rush should definitely replace, like I mentioned earlier, replace that need for speed. Going, going, top of the world, getting to the top, dancing as fast as you can, go, go, go. Um, that sort of dopamine, that rush, um, like a true drug, climbing became that for me. The other part of it, too, is there's it, it really tapped into my inner competitiveness. I've never done team sports, grew up in a family of eight kids, and you had to fight as a youngest uh, son for food. And so I've always kind of had that sort of chase and climbing allowed me to sort of be competitive and chase getting to the top of the, the climb, even though I wasn't, you know, I was new and I wasn't a great climber, just getting to the top brought that sort of competitiveness out. And once I started climbing, it opened the way for other sports, extreme sports like skydiving, bungee jumping, jumping off cliffs in the middle of the Thai ocean. Um, and so for me, it, it was enough for me to get to the top and feel that roller coaster feeling like, wow, this is exciting. Going down was not as fun as getting to the top. Um, and you mentioned earlier climbing, you know, without kind of ropes, doing free soloing, which is climbing without ropes. You know, if you one wrong move, you fall. I've never really been into that, but it did kind of excite me. So a couple of years ago, I tried a, a route that was really easy. I went 200 feet and the route's 300 feet. I felt like, well, you know, I know the route I've climbed up it a lot of times. Maybe I shouldn't do more risk and do that last hundred feet. And so I came down. I always have a bailout place. I don't ever climb without ropes. But this one instance I did, 
but I already looked, okay, I've climbed this before. I know how to bail and just hike down if it gets kind of scary. Do I want to do that when I wake up? No, I prefer leading my own rope and being safe that way. Generally speaking, you climb up and sort of repel back down. If somebody's like, hey, getting down sounds harder than getting up, you kind of repel back down. Is that the, th the idea? Yeah, you could repel or have or get lowered. Repelling just you, you control your own speed and descent. Uh, being lowered is when the, your partner does it for you. So those are your two two ways to do it. Okay, thank you. Now, the, I just mentioned about the cost. Uh, weather would have prevented me doing it in, in Acadia, but I looked up the cost and I was like, oh my gosh, it's almost $300 to go out one-on-one -on -one and the, the instructors or guides uh, don't want to go out with a ratio any higher than four to one. Price doesn't get that much better. So even if I said, hey, do you have any other solo people who'd want to team up? I don't think it was going to get below about 250. I thought, well, maybe that's it. So it's main, it's a holiday area. I checked the park, the prices in the Shaw and Gunks. Very comparable. I always thought skiing was expensive and I'm an advocate for running because it costs nothing. How can I do this less expensively? And how can somebody who's younger or just older and has like really little money do this less expensively? Um, well, I, I might just say that when I started getting into climbing, I started to join meetups, meetup.com, and they had different interests. There was a local in the Bay Area, San Francisco, um, a climbing group. So I joined it and it was always run by one person who kind of, they weren't a professional climber. They weren't a certified guide. And so when I was in that experience going to these different outdoor climbs, I wanted to create a community from the ground up that was inclusive of all people and all levels. So I did that with a group in 2012 called Get Your Climb On. Again, I wasn't a guide, but my premise was that I'm a peer like you. I have some climbing experience and I wanted to gain more and find partners, but it's really hard. I didn't solo. I didn't even know what that is. It was really a community sport. You climbed with another person and you went outdoors. So now I'm creating the space for people who are indoor climbing. Like Chris said, they're training, but there wasn't a lot of opportunity for these people indoor climbing to go outside. So as I you know, started to go to these different areas and climb outside with my core group who are also in my group, the group grew. I was able to kind of take people outdoors and show them places to go. Now, again, I'm a peer. I, I, I go out and climb what I can. And then I learn and I grow. And then what I learned in that group was we pool our gear together. We're safe. We're having fun. We, we carpool together. I didn't have a rope my first year because it was expensive. So if other people in the group who are better than me had the gear, I was good until I got my own gear. And the other, so that was a really a cheap way was to get into a meetup climbing group because a lot of the people in my groups now, the new people, they don't have ropes. So as they go in more outdoor climbs, they're saying, hey, I'm thinking about getting a rope. I think it's worthwhile getting the investment because after a while I felt like asking for other people to climb on their rope and I didn't have one. It kind of made me, you know, I want a rope. I'm, it's worth the investment. And I was making good money, but before I was making good money, I wasn't. I, I just kind of relied on the kindness of others. And Chris, I didn't know if you had any thoughts about that as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, the climbing gym is, a, I think, a great place, you know, um, for, for all ages, really. Uh, I would, I mean, that's kind of how I learned. That, you know, I got a lot of my partnerships through the climbing gym. You know, I started as when I was younger, I actually started volunteering at the climbing gym. I'd wash holds in exchange for membership because I didn't have money for a membership. And 
because uh, any money that I had saved, I wanted to put towards like a carabiner or a cam or a, a stopper. Like literally I was buying like one stopper at a time to like try to build my rack up. So I wasn't going to spend $30 for a month to go climbing indoors. And so, you know, I, I just started doing that and uh, started meeting other friends who was into it. And then that actually, then I started talking and like, you, you kind of like, you know, again, this is when I was a lot younger. So there's a couple people in high school who were climbing. And so then I kind of saw like little subtle things of like, oh, wait, that's, that's a climbing t-shirt. And I'd go up and talk to that person. Like, Do you climb? Yeah. You know, and, and I think just being out there, being open. I know it's these days with, you know, like when I go to the climbing gym now and I just, and I, when I go boulder and I sit down and I swear I must be the only one not on my phone when I'm sitting. So I, I find it's probably more difficult now. Uh, because before no one had phones, right? You you got down and you and then you cheered someone else on. You're like, yeah, nice job. But it seems like now everyone's kind of. But you know, I think approaching other climbers, you know, if you're not shy, you know, just uh, yeah, get out there. I, I don't recommend just trying to go outside your first time. I mean, there's a lot of little little tiny subtle things that uh, can kill you. Sure. I mean, it does sound it does sound very much like like skiing, whereby you can go out, rent gear, and take lessons, and it's not cheap. But if you get into it, you just start getting your equipment bit by bit by bit, and the next you know is you've got your ski gear, and you don't have to pay those rental fees, and you don't have to pay for lessons, and and uh, and and you know then 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 it becomes at least more more affordable. I do have to ask you, Chris, before we wrap up, and I want to I want to get an update on where the film is at and how how people can can get a peek out of it um i am always in when i watch these movies whether uh, particularly about rock climbing i've watched films about people on everest and other you know really uh, uh great mountains i'm always thinking of the cameraman because i'm like all right you're making a film about people who are doing something dangerous there's somebody here who's doing something dangerous with a camera and they've got like two they're having to focus on getting up and down this thing and They've got a camera. I mean, I feel the same about like ski, uh, you know, photographers. Uh, how hard is it, Chris? I, you, you know, I mean, it, it seems to me like really, really hard. <laughs> Are you carrying a big camera these days? And like it would have been in the old days? I mean, yeah. You know, it, it depends. The camera technology has gotten better. They've gotten lighter. They've gotten nicer. Um you could carry, you know, I have bigger, more cinema type cameras that I carry on climbs. It depends if it's for like, depending on what type of look you want to use, you know. Um, so I don't know. Is it harder? It's not technically more difficult than climbing because typically, let's just run through this. Uh, say I want to climb this or I want to film this thousand foot route. So either I'll go up few days before and fix a static line right uh, or the me and the athletes will go up the day before and fix a static line like somehow you got to get a rope up there for me right because i always when i'm filming i always have a rope above me because i'm all i'm doing is jugging up the rope right that allows me to stop at any moment and film okay and i could you know let go of my camera i don't have to worry about now i've done shoots where i'm climbing with the climbers and that is a lot more difficult than i take a very small camera and that's totally different that's more docu full-on doc style you know but um yeah wow okay okay i think you've done a good job of like uh describing the difference between two different 
two different types of doing this. Yeah, I do. You do have my admiration for that. And given uh, you know your experience and 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 background here, uh, you've you've kind of led on from the beginning. I'm make, making a documentary, even a 45 minute documentary, which is where roughly where it stands right now, is a 10 year process. Um, <laughs> I have seen some. I have seen what looks to me like a completely finished film. Is it available? Can people see it? Uh, where is it at? And where can people at least see some of it? So right now, after spending 10 years, kind of stop and go, economy, cost, there's a lot of factors and variables. As a producer, you want to be the sort of the, not the captain, because Chris and I are really like the co-captains of the ship. He's the technical and I'm the, um, you know, the, the person that kind of wears many hats. So recently uh my goal was to kind of share the the film with the world um but before we did that we did private screenings we wanted to create a buzz and then through that sort of stop and go i wanted to share the film in the film festival circuit before going distribution or before even doing a premiere and so i spent this last year in san francisco for the last six months to kind of getting the film dusted off and saying chris hey i want to get this into the film festival because i really think it's the job of the producer to do that so I joined this uh, great portal called filmfreeway.com, submitted the film, the, set up the profile, put pictures in there, put the trailer on there, and submitted it to all the top film festivals, including like Sundance, Banff, Telluride, Cannes Film Festivals, uh, and more. And we didn't show the film yet to the world. We didn't publish it. We just did teasers, we did some marketing stuff, and we did some private screenings. Now, and you saw it through your own film festival participation, we only have it for select audiences who are film festival judges and people who are comparable. But we, I talked to Chris a couple months ago and said, hey, maybe we can expand the film in the new year. Uh, maybe at that point we could talk about distribution on places like Netflix or Amazon. Um, but I think just kind of seeing how we place in the category for short documentary in any of the film festivals would would be great because if we win, there's that sort of accolades, there's maybe a monetary amount, but you get they get to premiere your film, whether it's domestic or world. And after that is sort of the green light that you get to kind of do, you know, distribution or maybe expanding the film. Um, right. We won a semifinalist round with Cannes Film Festival a couple of weeks ago. And so that was an exciting place for us to get. But Chris, you know, I've been communicating with Chris and said, we really don't know how the other films uh, will go until the end of the year, because by December, all the other films will have seen the film. And so it's kind of a waiting game, but it's an exciting time. Chris, I never thought that we would get to this place, but <laughs> really grateful that we did. We are. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I have been involved in one or two, or not involved, semi-involved in one or two film projects, and I thought books could take a long time coming to to print. They're they're <laughs> like they're like websites compared to doing films. <laughs> I you have my admiration. I've kind of stayed a little wary of films because I realise it's uh, it costs money, and you've got to keep raising that money. It's a very 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 slow process. I know that one thing that caught me on the film when you talked, uh, Michael, about uh, I think there's an area in San Francisco uh, or, or particularly a wall, you know, a rock face that you can climb and look out on the city. And you describe that as being part of this incredible, you know, that's what gives you that kind of buzz that you can't. That that's that's the kind of thing that can get you hooked. What is that place in San Francisco with a, that you can do that and look out on the city? 
It's called Beaver Street Wall. It's like right in the middle of a popular neighborhood. It's very suburban, a lot of houses. So you, you, unless you go there, it's a very small sliver of a park and it's got a preschool next to it, but it's got this glossy marble wall made from lava. And um, that was my first outdoor climb. And once I got to the top, I could see the city and it created a buzz. But before I talk a little bit about that, because I know we're wrapping up, also I'll provide you a link with Chris's work because mm. he's the master storyteller, everything outdoors. Mm. And because he has this award-winning background, he was sort of my top guy to do this project. And so I don't, I definitely want to give him a shout out credit. So I will give you his link as well. But I think a lot of the stuff and why we're here today really drives that passion for rock climbing. Marine shares that passion. Chris shares that passion. Ben and all the people involved and I do. If we didn't have that sort of passion, which sometimes could be like an addiction, um, we wouldn't have the story of Rockaholic like we do today. And it, it's just our humble story. Rock climbing was the sort of vehicle that changed our lives in a meaningful way. We did the film, you know, to really impact others so that if they have a life change, a dark path, that maybe rock climbing is the way out of that. It could be running. It could be biking. Chris is a big cyclist. And I, I can't speak for Chris, but I'm assuming you get that that sort of high from doing biking as well. So I just wanted mm -hmm. to kind of do a shout out for Chris's work, but also for the passion that Maureen and I and Ben share. Otherwise we wouldn't do this film at all. We'd be out there climbing. Thank you. Well, that's a great way to end it. Thank you very, very much. Thanks uh, Chris for your part in making a really good uh, film. Thank you, Michael, for opening up and sharing your story. Uh, it's very, very, very powerful. Uh, so is Maureen's, so is Ben's. And I'm really hoping this uh, gets its uh, due, due kudos and props at the film festivals and we all can get to see it on you know one of the streaming platforms or something soon. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Tony. Yeah. Bye, Chris. Thanks, Thanks. Tony. As ever, I will supply you with links in the show notes so that you can find out more uh, about our guests and about, in this case, the movie project. But uh, as a quick one, you will find the trailer on YouTube if you search for it. Michael on Instagram is Rockaholic2023. There is a Facebook page, Rockaholic the Movie. And Michael's also given me links for the meetups and for Chris's professional reel. So all of that will be shared in the show notes along with, again, a link to tonyfletcher.substack.com where you can just enter your email address to get two weekly updates from me. If they, they'll, they'll lean in all the different directions that my life leans in. You can read what you want if you like what you see and read and you want to dig deeper into my archives or help support this show, then you are more than welcome to do so with a paid subscription. You will get bonus material for that. And I think that one of the good things about me having this uh, this new outlet just to put some thoughts down is I don't need to kind of do the updates uh, that I've occasionally done here, particularly on the first series season about my own life and outdoor activities, etc. because uh, that Substack newsletter is a perfect place for them. What I will say is that the next episode will most likely gravitate back to travel because I'm just about to head off to Costa Rica for the very first time. I did talk to Shafiq Medji just one episode back uh, about that country. I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a mixture of holiday with my partner, and I hope to get some outdoor and uh, possibly, possibly underwater activities in there as well. There'll definitely be out outdoors ones. You don't go to Costa Rica and not get outdoors and admire the scenery. I'm going to bring the Zoom recorder with me. That's the one that enables documentary style episodes. It can be a bit time consuming to edit them, but if I get a good story, 
I'll be sure to record it. And I think Paula, my partner, might join me on that next episode to talk about our experience. Uh, she was the host on the final episode, uh, or you know, the person who interviewed me, final episode of the first season about the unexpected brain hemorrhage I had, and which clearly I survived. The background music for this particular episode is Yes Men by The Dear Boys, which is my own band, my own composition, with my friend Tony Page back in England, It's the one that feels suitably aggressive or at least adrenaline rushed, I should say, for this particular subject matter. When we're more mellow, you tend to hear Delay Mania by my 18-year-old son, Noel Fletcher, who's about to head off to college to learn and study more of the same about music production. This show drops once a month. It's interspersed with my other podcast, The Fanzine Podcast. I look forward to your subscriptions, your likes, your reviews, all that kind of stuff. Subscription is really the main thing, to be quite honest. And similarly to TonyFletcher.substack.com, I will see you or you will at least hear from me on the next episode you choose to listen to. Thanks for doing so. Take care out there. And if you go rock climbing, a I'd love to hear from you about it if it's your first time. And of course, stay safe wherever and whatever you do. Bye now. (laughs) 